All right, if you want to turn to 1 Corinthians, we're 1 Corinthians 12. We're back into our series, walking through the book of 1 Corinthians after being out for over a month. If you're new, uh, 1 Corinthians is a book in the New Testament, the second part of the Bible from Jesus' birth onward. It's a letter written by a guy named Paul, known as the Apostle Paul, to the church in the town of Corinth, uh, which is in Greece. It's a long letter. It's the second longest letter in our Bibles after Romans, and it covers a lot of ground. Um, all the previous sermons are up online if you want to go catch up um, on what we've covered. But we are picking up at a pretty natural spot here in chapter 12, uh, a, a natural kind of breaking point, that is. Uh, from chapter 7 onward, Paul has been responding to topics, to issues, to questions that the Corinthians had brought up to him in a letter they had written to him. So if you were to start chapter 7, um, it begins now concerning the matters about which you wrote. And then at several points from then on, Paul does this, repeats this phrase, now concerning, and then he goes into a new topic. And so in this, just notice that Paul is pastoring the church here, right? He's He's engaging them in areas where they have questions, where they have, um, where there's struggle, where there's confusion, where, where they want to know more about what, how, how to think and how to live on this topic in light of who God is and in light of what God has said and what he's done. And so here in chapter 12, he begins another one of those topics. It begins now concerning, and the topic here is spiritual gifts, um, and this will be the topic throughout the next three chapters, chapters 12 through 14 of 1 Corinthians. We are just going to cover three verses today. Pretty manageable. First three verses here. Let me, let me spend a few minutes helping us see what these first three verses of this section say. Understand the flow of the logic here, because it can be a little bit confusing. And then we'll ask a couple questions to unpack this for us. Okay, so we're going to walk through these fairly quickly and then kind of unpack it with a couple of questions. So Paul begins, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers. So the topic here is spiritual gifts, or this could, could be translated as just spiritual things, things of a spiritual nature. But as you read through the content, these, these verses, these chapters, um, you realize that spiritual gifts is primarily what is in view here. You may be aware that this is a uh, somewhat debated topic in among Christians. There are differing convictions, differing interpretations of spiritual gifts and of these three chapters. Um, primarily, this has to do with, uh, usually this has to do with the more miraculous gifts of tongues and prophecy, healings and miracles, even within this church, there are different convictions on these things. We're not going to get into any of that today. We'll push it off at least one week. Because Paul begins by first laying some groundwork that is hugely important for us to understand if that conversation, if those conversations are going to be at all fruitful. Paul is a very wise pastor, and instead of immediately jumping in and taking sides and settling debates, if that were even possible, he steps back 
and focuses on some more foundational issues. So we'll uh, continue on there from verse 1, the rest of verse 1, and verse 2. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. So he doesn't want them to be uninformed about spiritual things, spiritual gifts, about things of a spiritual nature, because previously they had been. Many in the Corinthian church had come from pagan backgrounds, had come from worshiping many different gods, mute idols, false gods, rather than the one true God. Their understanding of spiritual things was, was all over the map. And many of them, at least those in the church, had come to hear the message of Jesus being Lord of all, creator, ruler of all, coming to save us from our sins and make us right with God. And many of them had turned from their worship of false gods, repented of their rebelling against their one true God, and come to worship the one true God. And Paul recognizes that they have a need then to be taught, to be rightly informed about spiritual matters. It matters what we think about spiritual matters, right? It matters what we think about the spiritual world, about who God is. God is not whoever and however we want him to be. He is a certain way, and he has revealed himself to us that we may know him. We can't know him fully, but we can know him accurately as much as he has revealed. Um, that's why we're here today. That may not be why you came, but that is why we, we gather. That is why we, we do what we do. That's why we preach from God's word rather than just spouting various opinions of men and women. We simply try to take what God has given us, what he has revealed about himself, about ourselves, about the world, and try to understand him and live appropriately in light of that. Paul goes on, verse 3. Therefore, so in other words, because you were uninformed about spiritual things, I want you to understand, so here Paul is beginning to teach them, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, the big question here is, why does Paul begin a discussion of spiritual things, spiritual gifts, like this? What is he doing here? What does this have to do with the topic that he just introduced? Well, what he is doing is stepping back and showing what true spirituality is all about. He is showing what it means to belong to God and what criteria we can use and cannot use to assess whether someone belongs to God or not. He's drawing lines of unity and fellowship for the people of God or the people of the Spirit. And he's talking about unity because, surprise, surprise, there was disunity over spiritual gifts. They were dividing and they were disagreeing over spiritual gifts. Uh, specifically among the Corinthians, as we'll see, there was a tendency to elevate certain gifts, namely tongues, 
as making someone particularly spiritual, particularly godly, and more valuable to the church. And so Paul says, in effect, let's first get straight what it does and doesn't mean to be spiritual. What it does and doesn't mean to belong to the people of God. And it's not about whether or not you have certain spiritual gifts. It's about confessing Jesus as Lord. It's about confessing Jesus as Lord, which means master. Acknowledging that Jesus is the almighty creator, sovereign Lord, come in the flesh, come to save us from our sins and make us right with God and turn our hearts to love and worship and obey God as we were made to. What Paul is saying is that true spirituality begins with a true confession of Jesus as Lord. It's not about what gifts or abilities or resources you have to to, to contribute to the church, to God. It's not about your background, your feelings about religion or spirituality, your vast knowledge of spiritual things or any of that. That's not how you know who is and isn't a part of God's family, the church. It is merely this, or at least it is first and foremost this. Do you confess Jesus to be Lord? Do you confess Jesus to be master, sovereign over your life, the greatest treasure of your life? Before we talk about spiritual gifts, we have to put spiritual gifts in their proper place. They are not dividing lines of who's in and who's out, or who's in touch with God or not. They are not ways to determine who's more or less valuable in the church. They are a sign, as we'll get into, of the diversity of ways that God works, right? Of the diversity of ways that God equips and empowers his people for for life and for ministry and for service. But before we talk about diversity, we have to talk about unity. Before we have a conversation about the ways that we are different, we have to talk about the ways that what brings us together and unites us in the first place. And that is unity in Christ. A common boast in Christ as our greatest treasure, our greatest joy. So that's the gist of what Paul is saying here. And that's all we're going to cover today. That doesn't mean the sermon's over. But that's all we're going to cover in in this passage. So I want to ask two questions of this to unpack and apply it a bit more for us. First... What does it mean to confess Jesus as Lord? What does it mean to confess Jesus as Lord? Because it would appear that this is is very important. This is something of a dividing line between who is truly spiritual or not, who belongs to God and, and doesn't. What does it mean to confess Jesus as Lord? Well, first of all, we should clarify what it doesn't mean. And clearly... It doesn't mean merely saying the words, as if there was some, something magical about merely saying Jesus is Lord. And one of the ways we, we can know this is because Jesus says pretty clearly in Matthew 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. 
On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus says a couple things here. First, he says that there must be a connection between our words, what we claim and confess, and how we live our lives. Uh, Our lives act as confirmation that our words are true, are genuine, that our confession is real. Secondly, he says that there will be those who will appear to be very spiritual, who will appear to be very, maybe have a very close relationship with God because of the mighty things they are doing. Prophesying, casting out demons, mighty works. But that in and of itself is not evidence of belonging to God. Merely claiming to belong to Jesus does not make Jesus Lord of your life. Merely saying or writing on a form that you are a Christian doesn't make you a Christian. Perhaps some of you were taught to pray a sinner's prayer at some point. You were taught to say certain words. And perhaps as you said that, you, that was connected with faith, and God used that to really come and capture your heart. But again, merely saying words... Even words like, Jesus, I believe in you, come and dwell in my heart, is no guarantee that that has happened. A true confession is more than mere words and more than mere actions. So what is it? What is a true confession of Jesus as Lord? Well, three things. First of all, true confession includes faith. Right? True confession in includes faith or or belief. Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you go on a couple more verses, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And this kind of faith is more than just mental assent to facts. I mean, we are told that even the demons believe, like the demons have good theology, but it doesn't do anything. No, this kind of faith is embracing good theology or embracing those facts as true and beautiful and necessary for myself, for yourself. Not just saying Jesus is a Savior, but Jesus is my Savior, and then calling on Him and coming to Him. Just like you wouldn't say, wow, what a beautiful day outside. Not today, obviously, but what a beautiful day outside. I'm sure if I went outside, it would really heal me of my my sadness and my sourness, it would really turn things around for me, and then you just stay inside and and you look at it. No. Or, wow, what a delicious steak this is sitting right in front of me, already purchased for me. I'm just going to sit here and look at it. No, you, you eat it. Having heard of Jesus and beheld him and believed on him and found him to be good, we must come to him as an act of our will. We must call on him. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So faith, secondly, a true confession includes being born again by the Spirit. It involves something that God does in us and on us. Uh, What does the end of verse 3 say? It says, no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. In John 3, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Uh, Nicodemus then said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? 
Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. In other words, confessing Jesus isn't entirely summed up and explained just as something we do. A decision we made, it involves that. But it also involves God working in us, God producing something in us. This is, this is why when we truly do confess Jesus as Lord and Savior, we are changed. It's not because we just made a decision to go a different way, but God comes and dwells in our hearts and begins to change us from the inside out. We become people of the Spirit. The ultimate difference between someone who belongs to God and someone who doesn't is the presence or absence of the Spirit. And one of the ways we know that, one of the ways we know who is of the Spirit is by their confession of Jesus. There's no spirituality that ignores Jesus, at least biblically, in God's eyes. There's no spirituality that downplays Jesus, his life, his death, and his resurrection. Uh, Jesus says clearly in John 16 about the Spirit, he will glorify me. The Spirit's role is to glorify Jesus, help us to confess Jesus as Lord. And so our purpose as a church isn't merely to just be spiritual, whatever that means, it isn't merely just to pursue spiritual things, even spiritual fruit. It is to know, love, and worship Jesus by the Spirit. That's what the Spirit is helping us do. And then thirdly, a true confession is evidenced or confirmed by fruit. A couple verses, John 15, 8. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Pretty, pretty plain meaning of that verse. Uh, the fruit that we produce, that God produces in us, proves that we are his. Uh, likewise, in 2 Peter 1, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, so he has just listed a bunch of qualities of godliness, if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. By these qualities, this fruit, you confirm your calling and election. The, the fruit that we bear, the, the godliness, the good works that we do, the devotional practices that we give ourselves to, cannot save us. No, we, we are saved as we confess and believe Jesus as Lord and Savior. But as we do that, God begins to bear fruit in our lives, and that fruit acts to confirm that he is really at work. So to sum this up, a true confession of Jesus as Lord, which is the most important, most important thing in this life, the most important aspect of your life, what you say about Jesus. A true confession is about beholding Jesus to be the sovereign creator of all things, Lord, master of my life, to be the gracious Savior involves turning to him as an act of our will in faith. And it involves God doing a real change in our hearts and affections and wills, which leads to us bearing fruit.
And all who truly do this, Paul says, do it in the Spirit. A second question. What does this confession mean for the unity of the church, especially when it comes to spiritual gifts? And this will be really important over the next few weeks as we walk through this. And it's why Paul is beginning like this. Well, it means we must keep first things first. Let's proclaim and behold Jesus in all of his power and glory and grace and keep doing that. Let's endeavor to know him, to love him, to worship him and obey him. Let's encourage one another in this and build one another up in this reminding each other and speaking to each other of the grace and the truth that is in him. Uh, Jesus explains the purpose of eternal life like this. He says, this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And this isn't only about the life to come. This is also the purpose of our lives now, to know God. And so to truly be spiritual in a biblical sense means to know and love God. Uh, the word spiritual means many things in our day. Yes, yes, people mean various things by that. But truthfully, biblically, in God's eyes, true spirituality is simply knowing and loving God. And in that, you may have certain giftings, certain experiences, certain backgrounds, certain understandings that help you with that. You may have deep, meaningful times of prayer and communion with God, or you may not. You may sense very clearly God leading you step by step through your life, or you may not. You may have a deep understanding and, and be able to readily understand the Bible and theology, or you may not. The, these are some of the ways that we tend to judge one another's spirituality and our own spirituality, right? Right? And I'm not saying these things are unimportant. But the ground and root is this. Do you, do one another, do we confess Jesus as Lord and seek to know, love, trust, and obey him? As we pray, through reading and understanding his word, through seeking his guidance in all things, yes, but first and foremost, as we seek him. As we welcome people into this church, let's not judge based on appearances or giftings or background or ability to speak Christianese, whether they follow all the habits unspoken of Christians. No, what do they claim about Jesus? And even if they make no claim about Jesus, how can we proclaim Jesus to them, help them behold him and come to him? Many of you know that as a church, we, we practice church membership. And the essence of what we're doing in this as a church is assessing a true confession of faith. We don't think necessarily that just because somebody walks in the door of the church or continues to walk in the door of the church that they are a Christian. They may be, they may not be. And so we have a membership process as a way to hear and then affirm true confessions of faith, and then bind ourselves in love and service to true confessors of faith. It's a way to simply identify these are, to the best of our 
knowledge, spirit indwelt, Christ confessors. And we are committing to them in this local church, unifying with them, seeking to disciple and encourage and, and hold them accountable. And part of the reason this is important and we think this is necessary is that in our context in America, where there has been a long history of Christi Christianity, lots of people say Jesus is Lord and means something completely different than what the Bible says. They might say Jesus is Lord, but really mean I like to be thought of as a religious person. And all my friends are religious, so if I say that, then I'll stay in good measure with my friends. Or they, they, they say, I want God to bless my life and to, to make my life better, so I'll claim him. Or they say Jesus is Lord, and they really mean something political or, or cultural by it. It's a political statement. It's a cultural statement. It's not about Jesus being Lord of their life. And so in such a climate, we want to sit down and have a conversation, which we do in our Roots 101 class, about who Jesus really is and what it means to confess Jesus is Lord. This is a way for us to draw the lines of unity where the Bible does, to the best of our ability. These are people who confess Jesus as Lord and to whom we have a responsibility to love and serve and encourage and exhort. So to tie this all together, there is a confession that goes out, Jesus is Lord. We hear this, we proclaim this, Jesus is sovereign, ruling, creator God of the universe. There is no other. He is merciful Savior, giving of himself to die for us. And we implore you, if you have not already, come to him and confess from your heart, Jesus is Lord. Then there is the gathering together, like we are doing now, of fellow confessors. This is a family and a body which we belong to, and we are called to serve and love and be loved and served by. We'll get into that next week as Paul gets into this analogy of the body. And we gather every week to make this confession. Jesus is Lord. We do that in song. We, we learn what it means as we dig into God's word together like this. We encourage one another as we see and, and, and speak to one another and hug one another and share in many ways, we, we keep saying with our lives and with our words, Jesus is Lord. And even in our confession, we are repenting of ways that we have not lived as if Jesus is Lord. And then finally, we take communion each week. By which we, again, proclaim Jesus who gave himself for us, his body and blood shed for us, is Lord. And Savior. We often read from 1 Corinthians 11 before we take communion, which says, As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And that's part of what proclaiming Jesus, confessing Jesus as Lord is, is proclaiming his death. He is Lord and Savior. So we're going to take communion here in a minute. Let's pray, and then we'll 
We'll do that and confess together.